In the Lord's model prayer, in Luke chapter 11, it begins, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, do we remember what we talked about as far as what does it mean to be hallowed? Hallowed be God's name. What in the world does that even mean? What is hallowed? Anybody remember anything that was talked praise about? Worthy. Praiseworthy. Okay. It's a, yeah, it's a form of praise. You know, it's just another way of saying holy is your name. You are high and lifted up. You are separate. You're the holy other. You are higher than we are. Your ways are higher than our ways. You are separate from us and above us, and we are beneath you. You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name is special. It's not common. You know, you are holy, Lord. And it's a form of praise. It's a form of worship and admiration, um, submitting yourself before um, the high and lifted up Father. And today I, in the book of Joel, I was just reading through this and I just, you know, it just stuck out to me. You know, the question just popped into my head. How in the world are we supposed to say this when life is crumbling all around us? How are we, just, how are we supposed to fall down and, and just worship God and hollow His name and look up to Him when we can barely lift our eyes because of grief? Um, like I said, I was thinking about this when I was going through the book of Joel. Um, and starting in verse, well, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Joel first. So this happens a couple, the book of Joel is written a couple hundred years before the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin are um, taken into captivity. And the whole found, there's, a, there's something going on, something tragic going on in Judah and Benjamin at this time. There's a huge um, pestilence. Locusts are coming and devouring everything. They're destroying all of the people's harvests. Um, he even says at one point that you know drunkards wail because the new wine is gone. <laughs> the, the, the grapes don't stick around long enough for it to ferment so that you can get drunk off of it because the, the locusts just come and they eat everything. So now the drunkards are wailing because they have nothing to drink. <laughs> um, it was just a very terrible time in the state of Israel. And Joel is coming as a prophet of God to show Israel, hey, this is a forewarning of what's coming in a couple hundred years if you guys don't repent. If you guys don't come back, you will be destroyed. There will be a nation of real people that come, like the locusts that just came and just devoured all your food. Only the nation that will come is going to devour you, yourselves, not just your food. They're going to come and devour you, just like the locusts devoured your land. Um, so that's what's going on here. And in it, he paints a picture of the darkness that is to come um, because of the sin, the disobedience of the people. And with all of this in front of them, and all of this tragic, um, uh, these tragic forthcomings that are being prophesied here, how are the people supposed to praise God because of that? And he says also before this passage, I don't want to read the whole book, so I'm just going to tell you this. He he says in the in, earlier in this passage um, that the people don't even have enough food to offer a grain offering or a drink offering. And what were the grain offerings and drink offerings? Does anybody have any idea what those were for? Because there was a number of different types of offerings, blood offerings, burnt offerings, um, 
a number of different sacrifices that were made. Um, the blood offerings were made for sin. But in the law, it was said that after you offer this blood offering, offer also a grain offering. Or when you, when you have a harvest, offer a grain offering or a drink offering. Not for sin, but for thankfulness. For thankfulness to God. For gratefulness. For either His forgiveness or His provision. They would offer up this, this food to God to say thank you for forgiving me or for providing for me. It was, it was different than a tithe, but in a similar way, it was, here's the first fruits of my thankfulness rather than the first fruits of my produce. Um, that's what grain offerings and drink offerings were for. And he said that there's not even enough to offer these thank offerings um, to God. In a way, he is saying there's nothing that the people can really use to say thanks. People can't offer gratefulness to God. Why? Because there's only pestilence. There's only turmoil. There's only wrath and fury. There's only misery. There's not even anything to say thanks about because everything is being stripped away from them. Right now, it's all of their sustenance. Later, it's going to be their whole land. Everything's going to be stripped away. And sometimes, you know, we feel like we're in a position like that in life, whether because of our own sins or because of the sins of other people or just because... Sometimes things just stink, <laughs> and we think, man, how am I supposed to offer up praise? What am I supposed to praise God for? I just don't feel like I can do it. Now, we know theologically, we can, we can come at that and say, well, here's the things that you should be thankful for, your salvation, your forgiveness, your, you know, your, your church family. You know, we say, okay, here's all these things that we should be thankful for. But in our hearts, it's a different story. Like, I just can't say thanks. I can't say thanks to God because I am miserable and I just can't bring myself to do it. So and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring this to you um, because we're human and we can admit that, right? We can admit that sometimes it's hard to say thanks to God. And I think that we should admit that. And um, we all get like that. None of us is perfectly holy and we need to stop acting like we are. Um, sometimes it is hard to be thankful, because life is hard, and we get miserable. But yet we look to God's Word because we should still seek God, and we should still seek to be grateful, to be thankful, and to hallow the name of the Lord in the midst of our tribulation, just like Job did. Um, even Job had to be rebuked for some things. You can read about that at the, towards the end of the book when God addresses him, but still, throughout the book of Job, we see him in the midst of a harder life than any of us have probably ever lived, but yet he is praising God, he is honoring God, he's not questioning God. But sometimes, let's admit it, that's hard for us to do. Um, so let's look at, actually, in Joel chapter 2, um, verses, starting in verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes His word. For the day of the Lord is great and terrible. Who can endure it? So here is just a little snippet of just, it's dark. It's tough. The, the Lord is sending forth something that we can't stand against. It's too strong for us. The day of the Lord is very quick and terrible. Who can endure this? 
But then in verse 12, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Okay, so here he says, he gives the direction to the people. Yeah, everything is crashing down. Now turn to me. Turn away from your sin. Stop looking directly in the eyes of your misery. Turn to me. Give me your focus. And how does he say that we're supposed to do this? At the end of chapter 12, how does he say that we're supposed to turn our hearts to God? Verse 12. Yeah, verse 12. If chapter... Yeah. Now that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? That we're supposed to turn to God with fasting, weeping, and mourning. We're supposed to offer up to Him mourning and weeping. That's supposed to be some a way that we seek God is by mourning and weeping. We think that we should we shouldn't be weeping. We shouldn't be mourning. We think we're more holy if we suppress those feelings. We're more holy if we suppress the sadness. We're more holy if we just you know, it's a sin for us to be sad about something, to mourn about something, to grieve over something. But the God, God is here saying, turn to me with your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. God wants you to not suppress your weeping, but give it to him as a sacrifice. To give it to him as a way of turning to him. To not mourn at the stuff down here, but to mourn up to God. I mean, and often we do feel like we can't lift our eyes. We can't seem to thank God for anything because we are overwhelmed by many sorrows. We try to say, hallowed be your name, um, but we can't seem to get our mind off of our sorrows. Um, and, the, and God is saying, you know what? Give me that. Bring those sorrows to me. Seek me with them. Seek me with your sorrows. Don't let them turn you away from me. Let your sorrows and your mourning and your sadness turn you to me. The emotion is not the sin. It's what you do with it. Remember the Lord says, be angry and sin not. It's what you do with that reaction that God is concerned about. When you mourn, what do you do with it? Do you try to suppress it? Well, that's carnality because you're trying to address it with your own strength. You're trying to overcome it with your own willpower. That's carnal, to try to overwhelm your own sadness with apathy, ignorance. Time heals all wounds, right? No, it doesn't. It just rushes it under the carpet so that it can creep up another way. Um, you know, when I was in, when I was in a I was a camp counselor for a summer out in the Mojave Desert out in California. And the summer that I was there, there was no fire nearby us, but you could see a forest fire blazing on the other side of some distant mountains. Um, you could see the glow in the sky. But that was, that was miles away. The fire was not going to cross those mount over the top of those mountains and come to us. But they told us there that the same thing had happened several years back, and it actually did start a fire in the camp. Even though the fire was way over there, because, because it was a desert, fire, the heat, makes its own roots underneath the sand, in, even underneath a mountain, and it can spring up miles away, because that's just the way heat works, I, I guess, out there. It's something you learn about when you live in the desert, I guess. <laughs> it's something we never, I, I've never heard of until I was out there. 
But it was something that was miles away. And we try to sweep our sorrows, we try to sweep our mourning miles away so that we don't ever have to see it again. It doesn't look like it's a danger from way over there. But yet it does have its own way of creeping in. So we cannot expect for time to heal all of our wounds, to heal all of our sorrows. No, we cannot suppress it with our own willpower because that's not sufficient. God is sufficient. And he says, turn to me with your heart with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Let that bring you to me. Don't just keep it away. Let that bring you to me with your heart. And he says, with fasting, how many of us even consider fasting as a part of our life? No, that sounds something ridiculous. That's, that's, that's legalistic. You know, we don't have to fast. You know, fasting is actually something that's a new, it's also a New Testament principle. I'm not preaching on fasting. But fasting is a way of de- devoting this situation to the Lord. We should fast when we are deep in sorrow. We should fast when we are mourning. Because we are devoting that. This is, you know, I can't sacrifice my praise, so I'm going to fast so that the Lord can work something in me and give me the praise to give. <laughs> to give me the thanks to give. And I do this through fasting with my mourning and my weeping. And look in verse 13, he says, So, rend your heart, not your garments. Now, back in that day, rending your garments was a way of showing mourning. Whether you really had mourning on the inside or not. People would rend their clothes if a loved one died. Even if they didn't, you know, perhaps it was a distant relative or something that you didn't really care that much about, you'd still rend your garments in order to show that you were mourning. And some people did do it genuinely. Job rent his garments and he covered himself with ashes to show that he was mourning. But here God is saying, rend your heart, not your garments. Don't make your mourning just a big show. Don't make it something that you're doing so that other people can see that you're mourning. You know, we can do this in a great many ways. I'm not saying any of these are sinful in and of themselves, but constant prayer requests, constantly bringing it up for the sake of getting sympathy. Or you shut people out of your life so that you can just be in misery by yourself. You know, these are different ways that we can, um, that we can try to make ourselves feel better. Um, this is, these are ways that we can try to get sympathy Uh, We don't rend our clothes today like they did back in the day. That's not really something that we do. But the point he's trying to make here is that our mourning should not just simply be in the flesh. He's saying, rend your hearts. He's saying, make, make an effort inside of you, inside of your soul, to offer that up to God. Not just the external show for the sake of other people seeing and coming to your aid and showing you sympathy, even though if we have prayer requests, we should offer them. We, you know. But sometimes, sometimes the Lord just wants to be intimate with you. Sometimes the Lord wants to use your suffering so that He can be intimate with you. It's not about you and your spread out community all the time. Sometimes when you're mourning, when you're deep in sorrow and sadness, the Lord is actually wanting to use that so that he can develop intimacy in your relationship with him. So he says, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and he is merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. 
and he relents from doing harm. You know, and this shows us the kind of God that we would be returning to. You know, with our suffering, whether this is our, whether this is our own sin, or perhaps we're praying for sins of other people that are tormenting us, that we are grieving over. He says, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger, great and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And when he says he relents from doing harm, it says, what he, what he means is, he's actively causing harm, but then he will remove himself from that and reverse that. He relents from it. He goes back. He stops, he stops the harm. And then he goes on to say, in verse 14, and who knows if he will return and, and turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Later on in the book of Joel, oh, here, well, it's, here, let's see here. In, verse, in chapter, well, chapter 2, verse 25, he says, basically, if you return to me, um, so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. He's the kind of God who doesn't just stop the pain. He doesn't just stop the taking. In fact, maybe you think you've, he's been taking from you, limiting you for 20 years. And here he's saying he's the kind of God who not only can supply all your needs, but he will also supply in such a way that it's as if it never happened. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. It'll be as though those locusts never caused any devastation whatsoever. You will be full. You will be filled. Because God is a restoring God. And this, is also, this also reminds us that when we come to God and we say, Hallowed be your name, and we pray and we are grieving before him, it's not like we, were, we are treating him like a vending machine. Like I put in my prayer so I should get my package. I put in my grief so I should get some sort of blessing. He starts, uh, I hate how he starts this because it makes it so up in the air, but, but look at it. He says, who knows if he will turn and relent and perhaps leave a blessing behind him. He says, who knows? This is a reminder for us to remember that he is our Father in heaven. His name is hallowed. It's his will be done. It's his will be done. We turn from our sin. We bring our grieving to him. Not because we're treating him like a vending machine, like he owes us something because we're, we've been suffering, and we, because we offered prayer in return. And that, God, I'm hallowing your name. I'm offering you praise. Aren't you going to give me something in return? That's not how we treat God. We fall before God as our sovereign Lord. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing? See, it's not do this and that will happen. It's saying, you know what? God will work in his own way. God will work in his own way. We come to God recognizing that he is sovereign and he will do with your situation as he pleases, not as you please. Because his ways are not our ways and his ways are higher than our ways. Now the Bible does teach that all things do work together for good for those who love God and for those who are the called according to his purpose. But sometimes that does not look most of the time, <laughs> it does not look the way that you envisioned it to be. Sometimes 
you don't even, you don't see the blessing. Sometimes you don't see the situation turning around the way you want it to. Sometimes we pray for people who are in sin and they never turn from their sin. Sometimes that happens. But does that mean that God is not there? Does that mean that God is not listening to your prayer? Does that mean he's not receiving your agony and doing something with it? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that God is sovereign. He is in control. And he is at work in ways that we have no idea. We know that God loves us. We know that he is faithful to us. And he does not leave us in the dust. We seek him and we follow him. He does not turn us away. He is the one who welcomes us. He is the one who calls us to come to him. So if we do obey in coming to him, he's not going to be like, psych, nope, (laughs) not doing anything for you. But sometimes when he does act, it's not in a way that we envisioned. Because we know in the New Testament, what kind of salvation did Jesus bring? What kind of salvation did he bring? External or internal? Internal. Internal. The people were expecting national salvation. The people wanted the external blessing. But what Jesus came to bring was freedom from spiritual slavery to establish an eternal kingdom, not a temporal one. And sometimes when God answers our prayer, our prayer was concerning a temporal situation, right? Temporal pain that's been happening in the flesh. But when God answers our prayer, often... He's answering it in a spiritual way that has to do with his kingdom, his eternal kingdom, not your temporal kingdom. And we have to understand that in God's ways. And then he goes on and he keeps saying, verse 14, halfway through, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So who knows if he'll turn and relent and leave a blessing behind that blessing A grain offering and a drink offering. Maybe he'll leave behind something that you can actually offer up easily and say, thank you, God, for that. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll make it easy for you to say, thanks, God. I really, I really appreciate that. I'm really grateful for that. Who knows? It's up to him. In verse 15, he says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Your mourning, the mourning that he's teaching Israel to have, it's a big deal, okay? Your situation that you're in is not a small deal. It's a big deal. He's saying, all of these people should be, should be coming together and offering up because these, all of these people were guilty. All these people were part of the nation. They should be making it a big deal to come to God, to mourn, to weep, to fast, to seek the Lord together. And we, in our situation, we need to make this coming to God a big deal. When we're mourning, when we're weeping, We shouldn't just try to push it away, try to ignore it like it's a small deal. Because if it's a big deal, then it's a big deal. So let it be a big deal. If the salvation of souls is concerned, let it be a big deal. If people's reconciliation is concerned, it's a big deal. There's a lot of big deals that we can pray for. (coughs) Excuse me. There's a lot of big deals when it comes to our mourning. Yeah, sometimes we mourn over little things. But even those little things... 
The Lord cares. He cares about the sparrows. He cares about our little things. But if, you're, if, if there's a big deal, don't try to make it like a small deal as though that's going to make you feel better. It's just going to create a brood of bitterness that's going to spring up somewhere in your life and it's going to cause destruction. It's going to burn something down one day. Don't try to sweep it under the rug like it's not a big deal. Let it be a big deal, at least between you and God. Admit it to God. God, this is a big deal. And this causes suffering in my heart. And I have a hard time rejoicing in your name because in this situation. And let God deal with it. Okay? Let God work in your heart in this situation. Let him do it. He's sovereign. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on on the other side of those mountains that you think, you know, it's way over there. I can't see it. He knows what's going on over there, and he knows how it can impact your life, even though we don't. Let it be a big deal. And bring it to God, the one who knows. Don't just let it lie. Don't believe the lie that time will heal all wounds. Remember, it's the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much, right? Be fervent. Let your mourning turn you into a fervent, persistent prayer. And finally... Verse 17, let's read that. Let's, let, the, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not give your heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should, the people, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? What he's saying is, okay, these priests, and this is really for where each one of us is a priest, priest of God. He's saying that their concern in all of this should be for the glory of God. And it comes full circle back, hallowed be your name, Lord. He's saying, we don't want to be a reproach among the nations. Because if we are destroyed, what are the nations going to say? They're going to say their God was not strong enough to save them. Their God turned their back on them. Their God was not a faithful God. He's saying... Weep. Don't just make your situation a big deal. Make the glory of God a big deal. Because God's name is a big deal. Make sure that in your prayers, in your seeking, that you're not just seeking for your own temporal good. Make sure that in your seeking, you are seeking that no man will find reason to reproach the Lord in the middle of the situation. Even sometimes, especially when our sin is involved, God can glorify himself in this way. He can bring things full circle around so that things actually glorify God in your life. Even when you've got a grave sin, God can turn all of that around so that now it's glorifying him rather than causing reason for reproach. And we have to also remember, did, now, your, your, your Israel history did the people repent and return back to God for the rest of their lives? No, they didn't. They didn't do that. And they did end up being a reproach, didn't they? They ended up dead. They ended up dead. Right. Yep. 
They did. God warned them and warned them and warned them. And they didn't actually repent. And because of this, we know that the people were thrown into exile. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because we have to also remember that God is zealous for his own name, is he not? So the people continue to reject God. And because of that, they were thrown into exile. But then what happened? God restored them. He brought them home. But not only that, what happened a few hundred years after that? Because of this, this rebellion, Jesus came. All of this brought about the right time frame, according to Scripture, for the Messiah to come and to save his people. So the Lord is zealous for his name, and we know that he will not allow his name to forever be a reproach among the nations. So because of the rejection of Israel, the rebellion, the Gentiles ended up getting the whole blessing promised to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all nations. So all of this still, in some weird way, ended up bringing about the glory of God and the will of God according to his sovereign plan. Even though, even though the people still rebelled, God still glorified his name. And God will see to it that he is glorified and that his will is done. And this, when we are praying in the midst of our misery, this should be our great longing. We should long that God would uplift his, his name in the midst of our situation, even though it might seem hopeless. Just like the book of Esther. Even though everything might seem hopeless, all the way for years and years and years, everything seems hopeless, yet we still pray, God, hallowed be your name. Make your name holy for all to see through your will being done in this situation. So even while we're miserable, we find reason to say, hallowed be your name. We do that by bringing him his mis our misery. We, don't have, we may not have a whole lot of thankfulness to offer, but he still wants us to bring what we have. We have misery. Well, let's bring that to God. Let's not sweep it under the rug, because that's actually something that we have that we can give God for him to do something with, for him to, to mold from something ugly and make it something beautiful. So we give it to him, because he's somebody who makes beautiful things out of ugly things. I mean, that's the story of salvation. Bringing life to death. I mean, that's, that's, what he, that's what he's in the business of doing. Taking impossible things and making them possible. Taking ugly things and making them beautiful. Making useless things and making them useful. That's what he does. He does the things that we can't do. So that we might put our faith in him. So we pray, hallowed be your name. God, here's my misery. God, make your name glorified in all of this. Even though I don't feel it, even though I'm not feeling all happy and bubbly, when I come to church, I just put on the face because I, I'm just so miserable. I can't smile, but I try anyway because nobody wants to see that. It's too awkward to talk about it the way I really feel. So we bring it to God. We bring it to God, and we let Him work through that. I'm not going to tell you you need to be happy when you come to church because we're fellowshipping with God's people. 
Because I, rec I, I recognize that some of our misery is long-term misery that can't just be gotten over in a week <laughs> from Sunday to Sunday. And sometimes this is a long-term conversation that we have with our Lord. And we need to let it be so. We can't be ashamed of that. Or think that this is the great sin that I am miserable. No, the great sin is not bringing it to God as though he can do something with it. When we treat it as impossible, well, that's the complete opposite of faith, is it not? Faith is saying, God, this is impossible, so I'm going to offer it up to you so that you can make the impossible possible. That's faith. God, make, make your name hallowed. <laughs> Glorify your name with this thing that doesn't look like it could ever bring praise to anybody. Sweeping it under the rug is carnal. Sweeping it under the rug is futile. And it will cause bitterness. And it will be an anchor to your soul. Anchoring you to the ground when the Lord has called you to rise. So we bring it to God. And we make it a big deal when, it, when we need to. To our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Even when everything is not so good. So I hope that was helpful. Now let's pray just for this to sink in before we get to our prayer requests and um, 